0: Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of When Movies Were Good with Rachel and my weekly special guest star Matt. Matt how are you today?
1: Yeah I'm doing good. Nice warm weather we're having.
0: Yeah I mean I was looking at sort of the weather in Texas and it doesn't look too good there at the moment so we're um I wouldn't say we're in a heat wave here but we've had a few hotter days. We've actually had a mild summer for Melbourne standards anyway.
1: Yeah well it's I'm one of those since we spent all that time inside where we could have the air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> but I just think it's funny, we live in such a modern age where you can say apparently anything and yet we still just introduce everything by talking about the weather.
0: Yeah, that's true. No, I was just gonna say that, but we... I guess the weather is such a factor at the moment because in different parts of the world it's so extreme, but um, we've just come out of another snap five-day lockdown. We weren't sure we were going to do this in person, but I said given my past audio issues, if we can do it in person, I would prefer that, and fortunately we have been able to.
1: Yeah, and I like having the excuse to order dumplings as well. Yeah,
0: (laughs) we just had, yes, I had vegetable rice and uh, Matt had his dumplings, and we had these cute little bun things as well. So in our pre-recording meal that we, we had together at my little abode here at uh, the headquarters of When Movies Were Good. So we are inviting you to come with us to spend a bit of time with James Stewart tonight. He, in the time that we've had When Movies Were Good going, we've, we've seen and heard a lot from James so far. But these were two really interesting films. He's the link to the films by being in both of them. Uh, But they were just two really interesting films. So Mr. Smith goes to Washington 1939. And given the political climate in a lot of countries at the moment, I thought it was uh, relevant to the moment that we're living in. And then by the same token, on the flip side, Harvey, one of his other most famous films about what's real and what's not in life, I think given the situation we're in as well at the moment, is a a nice tie-in. So Matt, were you familiar with these films before we did them?
1: Well, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is one of many films in my very large to watch collection because I did used to have a habit of going to the DVD store and always looking at the classics section and finding what was on special. So I had the tendency to buy films quicker than I could watch them. And I was glad to have that in my collection when we came up to this particular thing. Harvey I wasn't so familiar with though. I guess I am not up to date on my white rabbit stories.
0: (laughs) Well, Harvey was a film that, um, when I was growing up, they always used to show it like on a Saturday afternoon. And I didn't know if we actually got to see Harvey or not, because I'd only ever watch parts of it.
1: No one sees Harvey, that's the point. (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) But at the time, I was like, oh, I must actually finish watching this film, because I never ever get to see Harvey. And of course, um as Matt was just joking there, nobody actually ever does, or, or maybe they do. I guess it depends on how how you see and perceive Harvey. But I always thought that Harvey actually was in the movie. And, and I, as a child, I didn't understand that that's not quite him being in the movie. It's not necessarily what the movie is about. So I wanted to go back and revisit it and actually watch it from start to finish. And I know there's been, it was a very famous play that won a Pulitzer Prize in 1944. So it's... A very well-known piece of work and I think the last high-profile person to play Elwood, James Stewart's character in the film, and he played him in the play as well, was um, Jimmy Parsons from The Big Bang Theory and I watched a few clips of him and it was kind of interesting, it was sort of just like Sheldon on the stage basically but...
1: Yeah, I have a feeling he may have even been forced into acting like that, because, like, um, that's why the audience is coming in, we need you to fill your stereotype, that's you now. Yeah,
0: that's right, and look, let's face it, most actors just play themselves, or different versions of themselves in, in, in a lot of the films, especially people who are sort of a marquee actor, that's the audience wants to see wants to see that I think Chuck Norris once said he goes I just basically play different versions of the same thing in every film because that's what the audience wants to see and that's that's fair enough I mean I must admit I only go and see Tom Cruise movies because I'm looking for a specific stereotype that he plays
1: well um I've gotten into this uh YouTuber and podcaster recently called Simon Whistler and he has a channels everywhere and he sort of presents history and uh, criminal investigations in a very light tone and I admit I'm Mostly attracted to his style, uh, mm. although I am uh, uh, always hesitant about how um, uh, perfect the research behind each show is, but you sort of uh, try and uh, look around it for a bit of entertainment.
0: Yeah, exactly. So if we head back to James's career, which I mean, honestly, you could have a five week show about James's career, but he was born and raised in Indiana uh, and grew up in Pennsylvania as well. He actually studied at the famous Princeton University and started acting there. And then pretty much after that, he went into being a stage actor and was appearing on Broadway and in summer stock productions around the US. And then went out to Hollywood in the mid thirties and he got his big breakthrough in Frank Capra. You can't take it with you. I haven't seen that one yet either. I need to see that one. And then from there, he went into the film that we're gonna discuss tonight, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And he went up, 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 went into the war, did many, many different things, and just is one of the most famous actors ever, basically.
1: He also played the accordion.
0: He did? What did he? <laughs> oh, no, who was I think? No, I was thinking if Steve Martin was playing the um, banjo, but... <laughs> um, they kind
1: of made a very strange Acapulco yeah, band. Yeah,
0: um, but I mean, I grew up just... James Stewart's always been a part of my life, just because I grew up watching, you know, sort of... He was always on TV in old films when I was growing up. And um, one of my favourite Christmas movies is one that he was in. And, yeah, it's just... He's just James Stewart. And there's just so much in his catalogue to see. And I've still got... But The Philadelphia Story is one of my favourite films. That's that's amazing. Yeah, with Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. So we're going to discuss Mr. Smith Goes to Washington 1939. That was directed by frank capra as well let me just make sure i've got that right yes and it starred gene arthur and james stewart and also claude rains playing one of the senators and i i I didn't know yeah he sounded a bit too english for me
1: well it did take a bit of convincing for me because i'm so used to him being the vichy um police officer (laughs) in casablanca
0: yeah and um wasn't he he was in... Oh, he, Claude Rains is around all the time, but I always associate Claude Rains with his later career when he's playing a few of the other sort of some sinister roles. But he... I mean, it's not that he was bad in the film, but he just sounded very English. And I think his character's supposed to be from the Midwest somewhere and it just it didn't quite work for me. Uh, and so the screenplay was written by Sidney Buckman and Miles Connolly, uh, who contributed some of the dialogue. And the music was by Dmitri Tymkin, and I know we've discussed him, his work. I think before. he did Robin, yes. Robin Hood. Music. Yes, um, the name sounds very familiar. So essentially, um, the film f- focuses on what we all know to be true now. I suppose back then it wasn't something they wanted to talk about. Just how corrupt the political process is, especially when an outsider tries to come in and actually do the job and do what they're asked to do because that's not really what being a politician's about and we don't sort of need to go into any sort of um common day or or into present day scenarios but it actually with what's going on in the world with certain things going on it really makes you think that even that long ago nothing's really changed
1: well uh... All sorts of examples can be found um, all over the world, Uh, uh, like uh, I think one of the core examples of conflict of interest, because it's uh, really a story about conflict of interest, and one example I can think of that happened in uh, Lebanon about 15 years ago was one of my professors, uh, because I used to study archaeology, he was heading um, a a dig in Beirut after there had been a massive uh, war. And they would try to make best of the situation and uh, look at the rubble for uh, sites. And he kept getting all this pressure from the architecture minister or something like that um, to hurry up with the, with the with the digging, with the studies. And it turned out that he, that minister had a financial interest in the main construction mm. company doing the work. Mm. So although a lot of people in government make and uh, politicians make fun of the bureaucracy of a government and like that an official can't accept a bottle of wine as a gift without a a paperwork to support it or something, yes, it can get a bit crazy at times, but you understand how easy it is for corruption to spin the other way.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Hang on, didn't one of the state premiers here uh, in Australia get fired because he accepted a bottle of wine from someone and didn't disclose... Uh, up in New South Wales, I think. So just Look, goes I, to show I, I you. Don't,
1: I don't know. It doesn't yeah. surprise me. There was an example when Malcolm Turnbull, I think, um, because uh, politicians are allowed to accept up to a certain value of gift mm. and he had to pay like a difference of about $800 to keep this pair of binoculars he'd been given, I think. Yeah,
0: uh, I know. It's just, And then other people who do the most ridiculous things manage to seem to get away with it. So, um, So basically this film was... Purchased um, Columbia Pictures, purchased the original unpublished story called The Gentleman from Montana. And it was originally going to be a vehicle for an actor called Ralph Bellamy, but once Frank Capra came on board, that sort of went out the window. And then the great Gary Cooper, it was going to be a sequel to his Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Now, I'd like to see Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. I haven't seen that one That's yet. That's another
1: one in my DVD collection. Yeah,
0: I need to, I need to see that one. Um, and they were gonna have that as a sequel to his to his first film, so Mr. Deeds Go to Washington, and then when Capra came on board, then he decided to just get James Stewart in, and James Stewart was perfect in this role. He he really looked like that country bumpkin and You know, he's so tall and, you know, he's great in this film. So what did you think of of James Stewart? What did you think of the film overall, really?
1: I really liked it. There are a couple of um, uh, parts at the beginning when they're sort of uh, wrapping in the iconography of Washington with the uh, idealistic vision of the flag, which uh, perhaps hasn't dated as well. But the core concept of this um, fervently patriotic person who... Uh, does have a high degree of faith in uh, the values of democracy, uh, at least as uh, it was uh, idealized at the time, and having to deal with the corruption of the system. And obviously it's easy to say in retrospect uh, uh, all these other parts of uh, holes in democracy that they didn't even uh, look at as they would in future decades, but I think the core of that film shows that even within the Flawed ideal of democracy at the time. There was a lot of clear um, uh, corruption to um, deal with, and it's actually partially based on fact because about 15 or so years ago, there had been a major investigation into a lot of um, corruption that had happened in the White House in the 20s uh, when an otherwise popular president had, even if um, with good intention, of uh, uh, appointed far too many friends and associates to mm-hmm. positions of power and it just uh, uh, ended up being a rather abusive system.
0: Yeah, and it's sort of, I think, yeah, if you go back into every, and not just US presidents, but in every sort of political system, even in our system here in Australia, there's lots of quid pro quos going on. And I mean, we had a singer here that went to parliament, um, he was it what the lead singer for Midnight, or was it Peter Garrett? And yeah. you could see what a broken sort of person he seemed to be when he left Parliament. He did stay in and he was quite high up in the government and, um, you know, he gave another reason for leaving politics but, um, you know, wanted to go back to his band or personal life or whatever. But you could just tell that it just wasn't what he thought it was going to be, and that's very much the, the No one thing.
1: ever does. Yeah,
0: and unless you're really, you come up through the branches and you come up from the ground in politics, then you know how the game's played. But for certain people who come into it, they get, you know, appointed somewhere or they win an unexpected election. You can just see, I mean, one of the examples I cite is um, the for- former professional wrestler, Je- Jesse Ventura. He, uh, back about 20 years ago, he became the governor of Minnesota. Just. Ran an amazing campaign and won. And after his four years as the governor of Minnesota, he was just this broken, bitter person because he just couldn't get anything done.
1: Well, you uh, you're not used to how the system can fight against you. Mm. And I think um, politicians would be one of the most stressed out people because you're forever like uh, you're forever watching for um the next person trying to chase up behind you. So it would be so easy to fall into a trap of um, being focused purely on guarding your own interests, mm. and like all professions, and particularly ones that uh, can have a quite a high um, uh, differentiation of hierarchies, so the military and and politics, all those things. Uh, once you go higher and higher up, uh, it's easy to forget about why you entered it. Yeah, so that's... it's. Uh, would be easy to fall into cynicism if, um, whether or not you're, uh, green, to, green and from the outside or if you're, um, growing from uh, within.
0: Yeah, that's true. And, Uh, Yeah, he was an example of that. So when I was watching this film, it really reminded of what he went through and everything he wrote about after he left office. But he just became such a bitter and angry person. And when he got in, he was filled with such hope. And I think this James Stewart's character in this film was a bit like that. And even though it's sort of open for interpretation, what happens to him afterwards, it's just nothing that he thought. So originally when they actually did submit the... The idea of this film, it actually the Hayes censors didn't like it because they thought, you know, there uh, there was obviously some pushback from politicians who saw it as very detrimental to their image of uh, being pro, you know, like pro people and everything. And it just shows you how corrupt they are.
1: Well, I don't think it was uh, going down well with a lot of politicians. That it was p- quite popular in the Soviet Union. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I- and this was uh, deep into the Stalin era, so if a movie was shown a lot, it was uh, because yes. there was a clear angle to put that they thought yeah. they could push. Yeah,
0: that's right. I do remember that they would show certain films that would push a point across that they wanted yeah. to get across, yeah.
1: In a way, it's a bit more more polished a version of what on the waterfront would be uh, mm. dealing with that internal corruption.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, I have seen on, on the that's, waterfront. But that's yeah. more on
1: a union level. Union
0: level, yeah. I did see that film because Fred Gwynn was in it, but... <laughs> So the film was partially shot on location in Washington, D.C. at Union Station and at the United States Capitol. So we did get some nice uh, scenery there. And overall, I, I did enjoy this film. Uh, the only thing I thought was, I thought everyone in the film was quite good. I just thought that Claude Raines was maybe a little bit miscast as the senator.
1: It goes to show you, even uh, the Brit always has to be the villain, even yes. when uh, the villain is an all-American senator.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I know, that's true. Actually, was it Jeremy Irons that when he was voicing the character of Scar in the original Lion King, he's like, how come all of the bad people always have to be English sounding? <laughs> Even when
1: they're furry.
0: Exactly, because Mufasa, I believe that's the Lion King's dad, he was played by James Earl Jones. And it's like, how are they brother, brothers if one's got an English accent and one's got, you know... I guess that's one of the mysteries of the cartoon world.
1: Maybe a lioness met with a lion in the war.
0: <laughs> exactly. That, that could be the case. But it's always, it's just interesting how the bad guys always seem to be the ones with the British accents in some of these older older films as well. So if we jump over to, so Mrs. Smith Goes to Washington was James Stewart's, well, he's probably his first really big film that he did or his first very popular film with Academy Awards, and and, um, he didn't win for that one. He won for, I think it was the the Philadelphia story he won for, but that was 1939. So we're going to go 11 years after that to Harvey, 1950. Now, this is, we were joking around at the start, did we ever get to see Harvey? But basically, it's based off Mary Chase's 1944 play, and from what I read, James Stewart did do uh, a turn playing Elwood on Broadway as well. Uh, So of the play of the same name and it stars James Stewart and Josephine Hull. The story centers on a man whose best friend is a puka. So I guess a puka is like a Celtic mythical uh, creature or being uh, named Harvey who's supposedly a six foot um, three and a half inch tall invisible uh, rabbit. And the ensuing debacle when the man's sister wants to have him put away in a sanitarium and all the people that um, Elwood and Harvey I guess come across so what did you think of this little gem of a movie
1: I love the plot uh, from coming from an era that's a lot more sympathetic to the needs of those with um uh, support for mental health it is a uh, uh, you do have the underlying worry that probably films like this gave a misguided representation of what treatment for those with um Uh, medical needs in in that area were because uh, they'd have seen this man going to this nice uh, semi-palatial building and it's just a a, a vaccination and apparently the worst that will happen to him is uh, he'll he'll be a bit of a less generous tipper to the cab driver.
0: Yes. But
1: (laughs) uh, I suppose uh, if you can, well, even now, uh, America's health system is very proportional to what you pay for it.
0: Yeah, that's
1: right. But uh, as far as the, the core line of... Uh, first of all, uh, that n- not since Maris and Fraser have I seen such a well-developed <laughs> character that isn't there at all.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we never did get to see Maris, but I think that worked. I well, think that worked.
1: Absence makes the heart grow fonder, yeah. Rachel. It, 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 yeah,
0: we never got to see... Maris. I always just imagine Maris is... Sorry, we're just getting a bit off-tangent. We're talking about Fraser, the TV show, and and Maris Isn't that the point of the podcast? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Will Rachel and Matt get off-topic? Yes. Um, Will we mention Alfred Hitchcock? Yes. Will we mention Larry Hagman? Yes.
1: Although we haven't mentioned that this episode yet. Any ideas?
0: (laughs) Well, the only thing I kind of came up with was that James Stewart... um, did work with Barbara Belguese and she was Larry's mother. But I haven't got a more direct, because Larry was the era after the classic films. He really didn't appear in films until the 60s. He only did a little bit of TV in the 50s when he was a young man. So he's kind of, it's probably more through who his mother, Mary Martin, knew.
1: Maybe he had a pet rabbit as a kid. Yeah,
0: well, I think Larry did talk to (laughs) himself. But I just think this is such a... And look, Harvey is one of those films where you can make of it what you want to make of it. And I'm sure on every on on some level everyone can relate to the character of Elwood in this film because everyone has a bit of a secret thing inside them, their own secret interests and desires and who, what they think is real and special to them and what they think. And no one should judge you for that, basically. So as he said, I'm happy the way I am and you know, basically he had a line about being in reality once and he didn't particularly like it, and we can relate. So uh, I just thought it was a very sweet little film, and uh, I think it it, it it works really well as a play as well.
1: Uh, I think it was very necessary that they worked into an early part of the script of the struggle of how uh, Stuart's character had been left all the family money, because they're obviously wealthy, and I'm thinking... Only a person of independent means is going to be able to get away uh, with um, that fantasy life for so long.
0: Yeah, yeah. A lot of, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of rich people, especially from that era, you know, they were very eccentric. And, you know, if you look at somebody like Michael Jackson, I mean, the more your money insulates you from the reality of having to get up and go to work every day and do this and that, even if you have worked for the money in some way, it's very easy to get caught into this alternate reality that your money can buy you yeah
1: and never have I seen a film where a basically a, a, he's basically a, a bar addict yeah uh, but uh he is such a positive character
0: yeah he is and it's
1: and he only drinks to be social he just has to sometimes fantasize who he's socializing with
0: yeah that's right so do you think that um like if you were playing Elwood with? l would would Harvey be right there with you, or would you be playing him like it's more of a figment of his imagination, like off somewhere?
1: Well, it's peculiar because later on, when the Pooka is almost yeah. taking on a relationship with the one of the doctors as well, yeah, um, it, Stuart is kind of able to accept him, accept Harvey like a an actual person who isn't always physically there. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's not like. I mean, his slightly creepier simile, but it's almost like Norman Bates' mother, where yeah. he, um, uh, Madre, he does have the corpse to associate that spirit <laughs> with. Uh, yeah. okay, so this got very freaky very quickly. I mean, we
0: will do Psycho one day, because Psycho was made in 1959 so that's how we're going to sneak it into when movies were good but that's going to be something we're going to do on its own one day
1: and yes we did specifically design the time framing of this podcast so that we could do Psycho <laughs> one day
0: <laughs> yes because it does go to 1959 it was shot I believe in the middle and the, towards the end of 1959 so we always sneak Psycho in to it that way
1: technicalities are a wonderful thing yeah <laughs>
0: Well, we had to cut it off somewhere because otherwise, with just far too many films and far too many scope. But um, yeah, this is, I, I really liked James Stewart in both of these films. I really, I probably preferred him in the earlier film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He was just such a young man in that film, and the potential of what he could be, you could see it there. He's such a striking character and such a great on screen persona. So I, I probably preferred... I did, I'm did. i glad I finally saw Harvey in its entirety, but I, I would say I probably preferred Mr. Smith Goes to Washington.
1: As far as uh, what film I actually enjoyed watching the most, it probably was Harvey, because I love that human drama with a good plot. But I would be very excited uh, to see a modern political drama even set in Australia or the UK, where it does show how the elective process and the voting process can be uh, quite uh, biased, and also how the press and media can be rather thwarted. And yes, that does uh, get shown often, and you have programs like House of Cards, but quite often I, th- I think they um, hype it up too much, mm-hmm. like uh, House of Cards, I was forever losing track of the uh, the different ways they were talking about rigging of uh, votes and quorum and stuff mm. partially because you had Kevin Spacey's manner overtaking the whole room yeah. and so you sort of forgive it as like um, uh, okay uh, he's pushing the system in his favour somehow I'll just go with that yeah, uh, but, the, but uh, yeah. Mr. Smith um, goes to Washington did a much better job of Uh, making it at a pace and in a direction that you can understand. And it probably helps also that it's a film, so they're only focusing on one vote at a time.
0: Yeah, that's right. One sort of issue and his journey from going there uh, as a novice and then what he has to do at the end for his own reputation and to keep going, basically. Uh, Actually, I would say that I never saw House of Cards with Kevin Spacey. I saw the English one yeah, the original guy playing Francis Urquhart. And... That's, I'm actually going to... You haven't seen that, have you?
1: I've seen parts of oh, it. I
0: might, I've actually got the DVD the, set. They're
1: both great, of course. Yeah. Being like about 20 years apart and America and Britain, the tone's quite different.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: the, uh, that was much more influenced by the impressions of thatcherism Thatcherism,
0: yeah yeah but that i actually so i've never seen the american house i I, I don't know something put me off kevin spacey and now i'm really put off
1: even even before yeah um, (laughs) uh, yeah uh, yeah i mean don't
0: don't get me wrong i thought he was good in glengarry glenn ross and a few other films that i've seen him in but i think once he i don't know whether it's american beauty or something he made that it just started going off the rails a little bit so um i mean best good luck to what he's doing and hopefully everything can be sorted out um But uh, yeah, I probably prefer the English one. But this was. But I think Matt and I are just going to have to put you on hold for a second because we didn't actually discuss the films that we're going to do next time.
1: You're right. We will be back in a minute. And we're back.
0: (laughs) After that short interlude, we have decided to have a lovely, beautiful visit with the most stunning and talented um, star, Audrey Hepburn.
1: Yes, this had to happen one day, our um, uh, lapse of uh, foresight for the next episode. Uh, Not um, um, not that we uh, are careless, we just got caught up in the moment. (laughs) But yes, I am very excited now to be talking about Miss Audrey in our next episode.
0: She's an absolute stunner. And we're going to do Roman Holiday 1953, so with Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. I've only I I know of the film quite well I haven't seen it and then Sabrina 1954 the next year with herself and Humphrey Bogart and William Holden I've only seen the remake with Harrison Ford and Greg Kinnear I like Greg Kinnear so
1: yeah well um the Harrison Ford one is very different from Air Force One I'll tell you that (laughs)
0: So it would be nice to have have a, a lovely... We couldn't do Breakfast at Tiffany's because that's just a little bit out of our scope, but definitely a film that you should see as well. In fact, all of her films, um, she's just an absolutely beautiful presence on camera, so we're looking forward to, to doing that one with her.
1: Yeah, it will uh, be interesting even... Um, I mean, again, not for the scope of this podcast because uh, her latter part of her career went a bit beyond the time frame we've chosen mm. to focus on, but... There are quite a few uh, more niche movies that she made that are less well-known. There was one, I believe, where she's, like, alone in a forest for a long time.
0: And there was one where she was, um, let me just see here, she was uh, Wait Until Dark. That was the one where she was playing the lady who was blind. Oh,
1: was that the one also written by the one who wrote Dying for Murder, Frederick Knott?
0: It could be. Uh, We can just quickly check that. But yes, 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 that's Frederick Knott, yep.
1: Look, I envy Frederick not so much. I'm uh, so much. I mean, like you start out as an almost professional player. You just miss out on Wimbledon because of the war. Yeah. You write three <laughs> plays that are phenomenally successful, and because of that success, you just can't be bothered doing anything else.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that that's actually, for all those of you film lovers out there, that's actually a good film to watch as well. I've seen parts of that, and I do need to revisit that one as well. So thank you. for. Our, we were a little bit haphazard this week because we weren't sure we could record in person, but we appreciate you being with us. We're back out of lockdown now, so let's hope we can keep that momentum going forward. And in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you, and good night.